I believe you mentioned a few weeks ago, and maybe we did, maybe we didn't, about uh, my newfound interest in author Richard Halliburton, an adventure traveler who wrote back in the 20s and 30s. Quite a guy. He went just about everywhere at a time when travel was a lot tougher than it is today, the jet age we live in, and had some pretty hilarious things to say about Russian toilets. But I don't have the direct quote in front of me right now, so I'll have to defer that until we bring Sean Minton back. All right, let's talk, uh, let's talk items from the world of science for most of this segment. Starting with a piece from the LA Times, at least a repeat of what's been reported in the journal Nature, that really is, well, pretty provocative. Reportedly, scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the Bay Area have produced a pair of nuclear fusion reactions that created more energy than was in the fuel to start with. And I have to confess, I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. But the reactions, which lasted less than a billionth of a second, released a few thousand joules, which is enough to power a 100-watt light bulb for, you know, several minutes. It's not a lot of energy, but it marks the first time scientists have been able to harness the power of stars here on Earth, according to the LA Times. Warren Morey, a plasma physicist at UCLA, said, it's really Im- said this is a really important milestone. Morey was not involved in the effort, and they do note that this is still a long way from ignition, the point at which the reaction generates more energy than was, than was required to kick it off with the lasers. And scientists agree that significant hurl, hurdles remain before that goal can be reached. But the test, described last week in the journal Nature, gave researchers a promising sign that they're finally on the right path to reaching this goal, one that could lead ultimately to cleaner nuclear energy, safer weapons arsenals, and better understanding of astrophysics. Said study leader Omar Hurricane, and I guess that's his real name, Omar Hurricane, plasma physicist at Lawrence Livermore, were closer than anyone has gotten before. Hurricane and colleagues used a simple fusion recipe of two heavy hydrogen isotopes, deuterium, one proton and one neutron, and tritium, one proton and two neutrons, which they fused together to create a single atom of helium, two protons and two neutrons, along with a spare neutron and a whole lot of extra energy. We hope they're on the right track to fusion energy. I would note that as a college student 30-plus years ago, we seem to be convinced that fusion was the future of energy. It has not gone down that road, due perhaps in no small part to the fact that not a whole lot of uh, research time and energy has been put into fusion. Is that due to a conspiracy of energy interests? Well, it's possible. Some people have argued that fusion energy is 40 years in the future and always will be, and uh, frankly, we don't know. But we we hope that's a a pessimistic and incorrect assessment and that uh, the boys at Lawrence Livermore and elsewhere will bring this online soon. (laughs) Sooner the better. Speaking of possible scientific conspiracies, how about this item? According to New Scientist magazine, it started with a whimper and ended up with lawyers. Back in 2006, Arctic wildlife biologist Charles Monnet reported sighting dead polar bears in the Beaufort Sea. 
he concluded that, quote, drowning-related deaths may increase in the future if the observed trend of regression of ice pack continues, end quote. Evidently, someone complained, possibly miffed that photos of beleaguered polar bears captured the public imagination. Monnet was suspended from his job at the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and was cleared of scientific misconduct, but he was reprimanded for leaking U.S. government emails. He sued, not the least under laws protecting whistleblowers supported by the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Last December, Monnet settled for $100,000, agreed to retire at 65, and not seek reemployment. Monnet told New Scientist, quote, the process was unnecessarily lengthy and disruptive, primarily due to the cowardice of key decision makers in the U.S. Department of the Interior, who should have known better than to allow a witch hunt, end quote. Monnet reportedly is now looking at, quote, options for making a useful contribution in my discipline, unquote. Noted New Scientist, the polar bears were sadly unavailable for comment. And that whole thing is sad, but, uh, Another reason why we try to champion the causes of whistleblowers in a lot of different disciplines on this program. They can sometimes pay a pretty high price for doing the right thing. All right, we promised on last week's program, or the program before, I'm not sure which, that we talk about the New Scientist article on sugar. We thought we might join that together with a historical look back at sugar and include a look at the slave trade and all that, but uh, that might be too much. Let, let, let's confine our talk today to the current article in the magazine. All right, February 1st issue, New Scientist, cover story, Sugar on Trial, What You Really Need to Know About the White Stuff. To quote from the piece by Tiffany O'Callaghan, an editor in the opinion section at New Scientist, Sugar was once a luxury ingredient reserved for special occasions. In recent years, it has become a large and growing part of our diet. If you eat processed food of any kind, it probably contains added sugar. You will find it in sliced bread, breakfast cereals, salad dressings, soups, cooking sauces, and many other staples. Low-fat products often contain a lot of added sugar. It's hardly controversial to say that all this sugar is probably doing us no good. Now, though, sugar is being touted as a public health Now, though, sugar is being touted as public health enemy number 1, as bad, if not worse, than fat, and the major driving force behind obesity, heart disease, and type 2 diabetes. Some researchers even contend that sugar is toxic or addictive. Now, this stuff was much talked about back in the 70s, as we reported in this program previously, but we, we've gotten away from that view of sugar for the past several decades. I would say due in no small part to lobbying by the sugar industry. And it might be a good time to note that that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But at any rate... Health bodies are gearing up for a war on sugar. The World Health Organization wants us to cut consumption radically. In the U.S., doctors and scientists are pressing food companies to reduce sugar and be more open about how much they add. Notes the piece, our early ancestors would have been totally unfamiliar with refined forms of sugar. And until relatively recently, sugar was a rare and precious commodity. Only in the 1700s, after Europeans introduced... Sugar cane to the New World and shackled its cultivation to slavery did it become a regular feature of the Western diet. In 1700, the average English household consumed less than two kilos of table sugar a year. By the end of the century, the amount had quadrupled. Of course, the trend has continued. 
Today, yearly sugar consumption in the United States is close to 40 kilograms per person, more than 20 teaspoons per day every day. There's some economics behind this. Notes the piece quoting Sergei Ahmad, a neuroscientist at the University of Bordeaux, because hunger is no longer an important factor in most developing countries, what can make people eat more? Food pleasure. And what creates food pleasure? Sugar. Notes the piece, all that unnecessary sugar, and sugar is unnecessary to our diet. You need fats, you need protein, you need starches, natural sources of sugar, but refined added sugar, we can all literally live without. The piece notes that all this unnecessary sugar adds calories to our diet. It's no surprise that the rise in consumption coincides with the rise of obesity and related problems such as type 2 diabetes. In 1960, about one in eight U.S. adults were obese. Today, more than a third are. Since 1980, 1980, 34 years ago, obesity levels have quadrupled in the developing world to nearly one billion people. One recent study found that for every additional 150 calories worth of sugar available per day in a country, there's an associated 1.1% rise in diabetes. Notes the piece, some researchers see something more sinister going on. To them, Sugar isn't just a source of excess calories, it's a poison. The most outspoken proponent of that is Robert Lustig, an endocrinologist at UC San Francisco. Described by some of his, some of his peers as an anti-sugar evangelist, Lustig's main beef is with fructose, simple sugar found naturally in fruit, which, which is also a component of sucrose and high-fructose corn syrup. His case against fructose is built on the fact that unlike glucose, it doesn't play an essential role in human metabolism. Now, our ancestors would have encountered fructose in fruit, but in nothing like the quantities that we eat today. Lustig argues that our bodies are simply not adapted to deal with it. Fructose is almost exclusively metabolized by the liver. When we eat a lot of it, Lustig and others say, much of it's converted into fat. Fat buildup in the liver can lead to inflammation and scarring and progress to cirrhosis. Fatty liver has been linked to insulin resistance, which is a precursor to diabetes. Also, as we talked about on this show previously, unlike glucose, fructose isn't regulated by insulin. Insulin keeps blood glucose levels stable and spurs the production of leptin, the hormone that lets you know when you're full. Fructose doesn't affect leptin production. One study even suggests that it ups the level of its counterpart, ghrelin, the hormone that makes you feel hungry. In other words, fructose encourages overeating. It's a compelling argument presented by Lustig, and a lecture that he gave in 2009 has been viewed by YouTube by 4 million people, but many nutrition scientists are still unconvinced. The article quotes Luke Tappy, a physiologist at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, as reviewing the case against fructose for the journal BMC Biology. Tappy concluded that while there is cause for concern in people who already have a metabolic disease or are at risk of developing one, which I think would include just about everybody, I hate to say, he says there's no evidence that fructose is the sole or even main cause of these diseases, but the case remains open. He says there are many unanswered questions. Another sinister claim against sugar is that it warps eating habits by altering brain chemistry to make us want more. Notes that for several years, neuroscientists have found it useful to compare energy-dense foods to addictive substances like cocaine, at least in a metaphorical sense, because it equips them with the language to discuss their habit-forming properties. But the piece asks, is this anything more than a metaphor? It's noted that food high in fat and sugar called hyperpalatable foods are known to trigger our reward system in the brain by boosting dopamine levels like addictive drugs do. 
And there is research suggesting that most people with conditions like binge eating disorders display similar physiological characteristics to people with substance abuse problems. But is that enough to condemn sugar as addictive? Some doctors find the evidence compelling enough that they treat obesity using techniques for treating addiction. But the case has not been fully made. Last year, Neurofast, a reportedly independent European Union-funded collaboration between 13 universities that produces, quote, consensus statements on controversial issues in nutrition science, reviewed all the relevant evidence from human studies. Its conclusion? There's, quote, no evidence, unquote, that food can be addictive. Unsurprisingly, notes the piece, the sugar lobby agrees. So the question is now in the hands of the World Health Organization. Alarmed by reports of sugar's danger, its nutrition guidance expert advisory groups been carrying out a review of the evidence with a, re- with a view to make some recommendations. They notice part of that process. Uh, Lisa Tamorenga, researcher in human nutrition at the University of Otago in New Zealand, has reviewed the research and concluded that it wasn't necessarily eating too much sugar that was making us fat, but eating too much of everything, which is kind of what I was taught in medical school. The piece asks, so is the white stuff off the hook? Well, not so fast. When Tamaringa looked at studies that were closely replicating food choices in real life, that is, when participants weren't held to precise calorie counts, those who ate a lot of sugar tended to consume more calories overall and gain more weight. And the most important source of sugar was one that's been high on the list of obesity campaigners' concerns for years, sugary drinks. And they note that drinking is different than eating. It takes, for example, 2.5 oranges to make a glass of juice. But drinking a glass doesn't make you feel as full as eating two and a half oranges. That's because the fiber in the fruit makes you feel fuller longer. Tamaranga notes that all these extra calories uh, don't make you feel full, partly because of the fructose, which can make up 65% of the sugar in sugary drinks from soda fountains that doesn't activate that fullness hormone leptin. And by the way, in a sidebar to this piece, it notes that artificial sweeteners may not be helping us a bit. Real sugar gives us two hits. It activates sweetness receptors on your tongue, which boosts dopamine in the brain. But as the glucose gets absorbed during digestion, the reward system gets a second hit. With artificial sweeteners, you only get the first hit. So by decoupling sweetness from satisfaction, many people may be left unsatisfied and compensate by eating more. Now, this piece notes that several epidemiologic studies have linked the consumption of sugary drinks with increased risks of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, which is why sugary sodas are the prime target for public health officials. So far, legislators in 30 states have tried and failed to restrict sales in some way, most famously New York's thwarted attempt last year to ban supersized sodas. The piece notes that this failure, in part, can be put down to the campaigns of the food industry, which has a long history of waging war against threats to its profits, as the World Health Organization knows only too well. The WHO's upcoming sugar advice won't be the first. Ten years ago, it tried something similar. After reviewing the evidence, it concluded that people should get no more than 10% of their calories from free sugars. The sugar industry went ballistic. They They lobbied to threaten pulling U.S. funding for the WHO if the reports were widely circulated. And it turns out the report, with its 10% figure, was published, but with little fanfare and almost no impact. So we'll see what happens if, as expected, the WHO recommends that no more than 5% of calories should come from added sugar. By the way, the food industry doesn't have to tell you how much sugar in its product is added sugar, and they're not likely to uh, let that loophole be closed anytime soon. And when you do the math on this, by the way, the 5% item, women who should get 2,000 calories a day of their recommended daily allowance would get 26 grams of sugar. Men, 
with their 2,500 calorie allowance would have 32 grams of sugar to equal 5%. Keep those figures in mind, 26 grams of sugar for women, 32 grams of sugar for men. Then compare that to one can of regular cola, I presume a 12 ounce can, which contains 40 grams of added sugar. And as it turns out, the average U.S. adult eats more than 100 grams of added sugar a day, most coming from soft drinks. So to reach these WHO-recommended levels, uh, Americans are going to have to cut their current consumption by two-thirds. And that's a figure that's just bound to not go down well with the sugar industry. And for that matter, the entire food industry. We will continue to follow this story, but we would note that the punchline to it at its conclusion is that the simple truth about sugar is, however much you might want it, you really don't need it. And that says quite a lot. All right, final item science and health. It turns out the dangers of testosterone supplements are continuing to mount. We told you so. A large study now shows that they double the risk of heart attacks in men 65 and older within 90 days of starting a prescription. An even greater risk was identified among younger men with a history of heart disease. One happy note in this study, drugs designed to treat erectile dysfunction, for which testosterone is often prescribed, did not increase heart risks. I am here to tell you that if you do have a problem with erectile dysfunction, the only way you're going to be helped with testosterone if the issue comes down to lack of desire, lack of sexual libido. If, if your libido is normal, you don't need testosterone to try and solve that problem. And since, since I do operate a clinic that treats ED, that's, that's data you can take to the bank. Like many things in the modern world of medicine, which, being, which is being driven by the pharmaceutical industry, things are being overprescribed. The small number of men out there who produce abnormally low levels of testosterone might benefit from supplementation. For the rest of the people out there where it's being promoted for, uh, you know, treatments for fatigue, depression, low sex drive, etc., it's not a wise choice. Anyway, on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Sugar. 